Johnson. And this game is underway with a bang. This is where the lacrosse area gathers to talk Wisconsin sports. The Wisco Sports Show is on the air. Join in by phone or text at 796-2558. Now, here's Grant Bills. What a weekend. What a week. Since the last time we talked, the Packers went through an entire draft. The Milwaukee Bucks played their first second round playoff game in almost 20 years. Brewers won two or three from the Mets. We got we got a lot to cover. We got a lot to talk about. I don't want to waste time. We are going to start with the Bucks because it is their first second round playoff series in almost 20 years. We'll get to the Packers draft at 530. And I want to get your thoughts on all of it, on any of it, anything you want to talk about. I'm right here, 608-796-2558. Reach me on the five-star telecom talk and text line. This was, this was a difficult weekend. We had a lot to focus on. I had a lot to focus on, trying to get to know uh, a handful of new Packers players from different schools, from different rounds. Some uh, the Packers traded up to get. Some of the Packers sat idle. Uh, very different situations, different positions. A lot to try to absorb, a lot to try to talk about. That, of course, Thursday, Friday. Uh, Saturday, the first portion of the NFL draft, or I should say the whole NFL draft. And then, of course, you got the Brewers playing the Mets. But the main event this weekend for me, outside of the draft, was the Milwaukee Bucks playing yesterday. And that was a day ruiner. <laughs> that, that was a, that was Actually, that was a weekend ruiner. The Bucks lost 112-90, a 22-point deficit, a home loss in Game 1. Not the way that you hoped for things to start. And last week, we were pretty high and mighty on the Bucks. Uh, I actually said on this show last week, I thought that th- there was a, a higher possibility that the Bucks sweep the series than the Celtics actually winning at all. Now, nobody said this was going to be easy. Nobody said that the series was going to be quick. I-, I, except for maybe myself, I guess last week, we're high on the Bucks. I'm high on the Bucks. I'm not down on the Celtics. I'm very high on this Bucks team. So a 22-point loss to open the series at, at home is not what I would expect. It. I was a little shell-shocked yesterday. I hopped on Facebook Live for a little while as that game was ending, just to to get some of your thoughts, and some of you chimed in and, and share some discussion points and kind of gave me a jumping off point for today because yesterday as a fan, I, I was shell-shocked. I didn't know what to think. I didn't know what to talk about. So it's almost good that we've had a little bit over uh, 24 hours now uh, to absorb and to think about that 22-point loss, right? Look, I, I, I know it looks really, really bad. It looks really bad. And I'm not denying the possibility that the Celtics are just a really tough matchup for the Bucs and they win this series and they upset Milwaukee. I'm not denying that possibility at all. I'm not here to be a to be a homer who only views this through through green and, and tan and white and black glasses, whatever color the Bucs are. That's not what I'm here to do today. I'm trying to put it into perspective. Okay? And, and now all the conversation is, and Giannis was asked about this after the game yesterday, well, now the Celtics have taken home court advantage back. The Celtics have, have snatched home court advantage away from the Bucks, And part of me does think that being the underdog in the NBA playoff format is advantageous because it goes two games for the home team, two games for the, the underdog, and then 1-1-1 one, one, one at the end. So there is some solace in being an underdog knowing that you're not expected to win on the road. Everybody says the series doesn't start till you win on the road. So Boston can go in to Milwaukee and, and to use a, a very overused cliche and, and play without money. If they win a game, great. If not, they're right where they're supposed to be. So Boston's playing very loose, uh, playing probably very confident because they know that if they lose, it's really no harm, no foul. The Bucks, on the other hand, probably felt a little bit of pressure yesterday. We're probably pretty tight. They don't and haven't played well in matinee games. So hopefully Tuesday night bodes a little bit better at Fiserv for them. But the whole talk about how the, the Celtics have snatched back home court advantage, right? 
how the Celtics now own home court advantage in the second round over the Milwaukee Bucks. Yeah, that's true. All it takes is Milwaukee to win one game on the road. That's all it takes. It's just one game. It's not this huge uphill climb at this point. Milwaukee, it, let's let's face it, the goal for the Bucks in the series was to not only win the home games and win in, in seven. No, I'm sure the Bucks plan to win these first two and then go into Boston, try to get one, if not both, and then come back and, and, and try to close it out at, at, in Vicer Forum in game five, right? Look, I think Milwaukee was expecting themselves to be able to win a game on the road. I think they were planning on it. This whole home court advantage thing, I think that's being overblown, number one. And look, once again, not here to deny that the Bucks messed up. They done messed up yesterday, okay? Nobody wants to fall in game one at home, especially by the margin that they did. But I'm just here to try to put things into perspective, to try to re- remind Bucks fans of a couple of things. Look, I'm not denying the possibility the Bucks could lose this series. Maybe Boston's just a tough matchup. That's a, that's a strong possibility. All I'm trying to do is add some details. Home court advantage, all the Bucks need to do is win one game in Boston, and they're right back on track. That's all it would take. Point number two. Uh, Yesterday, I don't know if you looked at the box score. Giannis didn't have a great game. It wasn't very efficient. His final line wasn't horrible looking. It was 22 points, 8 rebounds, 2 assists, and a block. It's the way that he got those 22 points, which were odd and, and not incredibly efficient. He was 7 of 21 from the field, which is a fat 30%, right? Which is obviously not ideal, especially the efficient player that Giannis is, making his home and and doing most of his damage right near the basket in the paint. Giannis was 3 of 5. He hit three three-point shots yesterday. And yesterday I was thinking, when the highlight of the game and when the high point of the game is Giannis is hitting threes, it's typically not a good thing. And I compared it to when, when, uh, when the Packers are complimenting Jimmy Graham on his blocking. Like, oh, Jimmy Graham just had his best blocking season of his career. Well, I, I, I'm i not interested in that, right? Like, if that's what we're focusing on, that shows that, that something's going wrong, that he's not being used correctly, that, that we're not scheming correctly, that we're not drawing up plays to use him correctly. Much like if the focus after a game is, well, Giannis hit three three-pointers. That's kind of an indicator. If that's the only statistic you told me, that he probably didn't have a great day because he wasn't able to get to his comfort zone, which is down in the paint. Giannis had a fine day, but the struggle was, and if you look at the box score, it becomes quite apparent. Lopez, Bledsoe, and Sterling Brown, who's the fifth starter, combined to go 3 of 17. All right, that ain't, that ain't going to cut it. I don't care how many Giannis scores. I don't care how many Middleton scores. And, and Middleton had a pretty good day. He had 16. But 3 of 17 from Lopez, Bledsoe, and Brown, that ain't, ain't going to cut it, Captain. That's not going to do it. And yesterday, maybe they did see a little bit of reluctance from Eric Bledsoe or Brooke Lopez and probably most of all Sterling Brown, a little bit of reluctance to pull the trigger and shoot, a little bit of reluctance to drive and, and to try to create a look at the basket because there's a huge discrepancy. Giannis took 21 field goal attempts. Middleton took 12, and then you have five for Lopez, five for Bledsoe, seven for Sterling Brown. That's maybe a little bit where you miss Malcolm Brogdon. You need one more guy who's very confident in his shooting, very confident in his driving and finishing ability. One more confident, ready, and willing score. Maybe would have made the difference yesterday. Now, that being said, I don't expect Lopez, Bledsoe, and Brown to combine to go 3 of 17 again in this series. But who knows? And if that continues to be the trend and the Bucks do end up losing this series, which if that continues to be the trend, they certainly will, then you can probably look back and say, well, maybe things would have been different with Malcolm Brogdon on the floor. Maybe they would have played much better with Malcolm Brogdon on the floor because you just have one more confident guy who's not afraid to take a shot, not afraid to create his own look. Something to keep in mind as well. 
And possibly the most salient statistic, the most important statistic of all, we see game one upsets all the time. Now, if you want to put a lot of stock in it and said, well, they didn't just get upset. They got beat by 22 points. Okay, taken. I understand that. But you don't have to look any farther than just a couple of weeks ago when the Sixers lost their first round game to the Nets and the Raptors lost their first round game to the Magic, both at home. It happens more often than you'd think. Now, the 22-point deficit, don't get me wrong, that's bad. To me, the takeaway from yesterday is the Bucks lost and they had offensive woes. It's not the 22-point deficit. It's the offense looked bad. Boston shot really well, and the Bucks got upset in Game 1. The deficit is, is neither here nor there. I saw on Twitter yesterday, this was uh, tweeted out by Dan Feldman, uh, who writes for NBC Pro Basketball Talk. Not a super huge account, but a verified account guy who works for NBC, right? These are the statistics from the last 10 years. Road teams who have won game one by 15 points. All right, yesterday we had it happen. Boston at Milwaukee. Indiana over Cleveland in 2018, last year. The Pacers winning game one uh, over the Cleveland Cavaliers. The Rockets over the Spurs in 2017. The Clippers over the Rockets in 2015. And the Clippers over OKC, the Thunder, in 2014. Five times it's happened where a road team has won game one by 15-plus points. Here's the kicker. Of course, excluding Boston and Milwaukee, because that series has yet to be played out, every single one of those teams lost. Every single one of those teams. All those teams who were able to pull a massive upset in game one, none of them went on to win the series. Now, rules were made to have exceptions, right? Trends were created to be bucked at one point or another. I'm not using this as justification for saying that the Bucks will be fine, but it's just another example of which I just provided many, I'd like to think, to say it was an ugly loss, it was uncomfortable, it was frustrating, but it's a seven-game series and there's a lot of ball game left. That's all I'm trying to say. Why don't we talk about something in more detail? Let's continue to talk about this series, and if you want to join me to talk, Bucks, you can either text me or call me, 608-796-2558 on the five-star telecom talk and text line. You can obviously tell that I'm frustrated. You can tell that I'm upset and disappointed as a fan. But as a broadcaster and the host of the Wisco Sports Show here on WKTY, I'm trying to look at it from a more objective sense, from a sense of what do the Bucks have to do? What needs to go differently in game two? Well, first of all, number one, Bledsoe, Brown, and Lopez can't go three of 17. That's, that's obvious, right? Other than that, I don't think a huge change is necessary. I don't think a huge adjustment is necessary. It's the little things. Let's talk about some of those little things and what the Bucks need to do tomorrow night to make sure they split the opening pair at the Pfizer Forum. This is the Wisco Sports Show presented by Play It Again Sports. We'll be right back here on WKTY. This is the Wisco Sports Show presented by Play It Again Sports. You're listening to WKTY. My name is Grant Bills. I am your host. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you had a good weekend. You had a lot to focus on. A lot to keep you busy between the Packers draft and the Brewers. Taking two of three from the Mets, it felt good to get back uh, to at least winning series. Weren't able to complete the sweep yesterday. And of course, that disappointing game one loss for the Bucks yesterday. Something for everyone this weekend. Trying to get to it as much as possible today. Uh, we'll get to the Packers draft coming up here in about 10 minutes. Right now, we're focused on the Bucks. And if you want to join in, 608-796-2558. Feel welcome to give me a call or a text on the five-star telecom talk and text line. I know it was a bad loss. It was a bad look. It was frustrating. It was disappointing. A 22-point margin is is certainly nothing to shake your head at. It's something that 
Makes you go, what? Makes you open your eyes a little bit wider, maybe do a double take. And I understand that. Uh, in our first segment, if, if you're just joining us, I gave a couple of reasons on why Bucks fans shouldn't panic, on why they shouldn't freak out. I'm not saying that the Bucks are going to win the next four. I'm not saying the Bucks are even going to win this series. Maybe, just maybe, the Celtics are a tremendous matchup, and they beat the Bucks in this series. That's certainly possible. All I'm trying to do today is to provide a, an objective view, give some reasons on why the Bucks should not be worried, based on history, based on things that we saw yesterday. And going into tomorrow night, which will be game two, uh, that game is going to be on TNT and, of course, here on WKTY as well. The Bucks don't need to make a huge adjustment. They don't need to shake up the starting lineup. I don't even think they need to shake up the rotation all that much. Yesterday, I'd like to see Bledsoe, Sterling Brown, and Lopez play a little bit more. Maybe some fewer minutes for Connaughton. Maybe some fewer, although Miritich was great yesterday in the second quarter uh, when he got hot. I thought Coach Budenholzer had a really quick trigger in the first quarter. Maybe that's something that, that he'll continue to do in this series and want to run through the depth uh, to get the matchups that he wants. I would like to see more minutes for, for Bledsoe, more minutes for Lopez, but they did have a bad game yesterday. Uh, Brown, Lopez, and, and uh, uh, Brown, Lopez, and Bledsoe combining to go 3 of 17. So I don't, I don't necessarily blame Budenholzer for the rotations that he did. I don't think they need to tweak the starting lineup. I don't think they need to even tweak the rotation that much. I think they need to make tiny, small, little adjustments. No lineup change. No huge switches, just tiny little adjustments. I thought that Chris Middleton said it very, very good in his post-game press conference yesterday when they asked him, look, Giannis is facing an army, right? They were coming at him, and Al Horford defended him very well. How is Giannis going to deal with that? I mean, Boston's obviously got a good strategy to defend him. They're sending the house. They're not uh, helping, or they are helping off of certain shooters and strategic points. How's Giannis going to deal with that? And I thought Chris Middleton said it perfectly Here's him after the game yesterday in his post-game presser. Just, uh, just find ways. I mean, but um, we've seen Giannis has been seeing crowds all all year long. So I mean, he's we got to count on to make the right reads. We still want to be aggressive, but if Boston's going to do what they did tonight, um, we have to make shots from from the perimeter. Um, just make the game easier on him and make the easier the game easier on ourselves. I like what he, I like what he said. Giannis has seen crowds before. Giannis has seen double teams. Giannis has seen triple teams. Even I, I don't is it, would it be a quad team, a quadruple team? Not something you have to say very often. Giannis faces a crowd all the time. Boston did it well yesterday, but it's not nothing new. I, I can't imagine Coach Budenholzer or Giannis was surprised at the kind of defense that he faced and had to go up against yesterday. And I think Chris Middleton put it great into perspective. You don't need to completely change the way that you play. You don't need to change the alignment of the starting lineup or the minutes of rotation. You just need to do what you've been doing all year long, but just do it a little bit better. The little things. The Bucks didn't execute the little things yesterday, and that, that was the difference. Uh, I was talking to a coworker before the show started at about 4.30 today. He said, yeah, the Bucks." Every shot was contested. Every shot had a hand in the face. And I said, yes and no. When I talk about the little things... Something that I noticed yesterday, when the Bucks had an opportunity to get out and run in transition, which, which wasn't often, when they had an opportunity to get penetration and maybe draw some help into the paint, something I didn't notice, shooters like Sterling Brown or, or Eric Bledsoe, or I'll, I'll even lump Chris Middleton into this group as well, they didn't get into the corners, all the way to the corner. It's not just about getting down into that region along the baseline and, and where the sideline connect. It's about posting up in that short corner for a three. When Coach Budenholzer first got into Milwaukee, something that reporters noticed and, and that readers noticed and anybody who's followed the Bucks under Jason Kidd noticed right away was that Coach Budenholzer had taped colorful boxes on the floor. These are the areas you get to. And you don't lollygag over there. 
It's, it's not the end game to eventually get there. You get there ASAP, and you post up right in that very specific area. On the wings, at the top of the key, and in those short corners. Because when Giannis gets penetration, whether it's in the half-court offense or whether it's in, in transition, like I said, it does not behoove of the Bucs. It's not advantageous of the Bucs to go crashing in there with him. Shooters like Sterling Brown and Chris Middleton and Eric Bledsoe as well to some extent, although he's not a premier spot-up shooter in, in, as far as the Bucks lineup goes, get to the short corner. You're going you're gonna to provide an opportunity for an outlet pass to Giannis and a high percentage three, and you're not going to bring your defender with him. You're not going to clog up the lane to give him uh, less room to work. I thought yesterday, and, and Sterling Brown was an example, and I thought Eric Bledsoe and, and Chris Middleton were guilty of this as well. Get to the corner and take a very deliberate, direct path straight to the corner. Don't get there eventually. Don't, okay, well, yeah, I'm going to step back to the corner. No, go straight to the corner because we saw that in practice, in their practice facility under Coach Budenholzer. Tape it on the floor if you have to. Get to that short corner. That's the difference between having a couple of feet to pull the trigger and a hand right in your face. The shot is the shot. You like a, a short corner three. That's a high percentage shot for a lot of shooters. But the difference is getting there instantly and having a second to pull the trigger and, and get the shot up in the way that you want. Or being behind a second and a half or so and having a hand in your face. And now all the sudden that shot nearly isn't as good. The Bucks were in the right place. They were getting to the short corner. They weren't getting there fast enough. They weren't being deliberate enough. They weren't executing as crisply as they needed to. And those tiny little differences is what can really throw off an offense, can really take a great shot and turn it into, well, where did, where did that shot come from? That's contested. Why are you throwing that up? It's the little differences. And if you rewatch the game yesterday, you'll definitely notice this. Part of that is Sterling Brown, and he does not have the experience that Malcolm Brogdon does. But part of it is just is not being detail-oriented. I thought the Bucks came out a little sluggish and didn't execute quite properly yesterday. Inches matter. Where players post it up, whether it's shooters or in the, or in the post in, in terms of Giannis, where they stand matters. For example, Brooke Lopez. Uh, I was reading about this today. I thought it was very insightful. It was the work of Eric Name at The Athletic, who we had on the Wisco Sports Show last week. Brooke Lopez took 512 threes this season. 512. Only 75 of them were from the short corners. Why? Because there, or because Brooke Lopez is typically going to have a center or a power forward guarding him. A bigger body. A longer body. So you want to, uh, Brooke Lopez as far away from the rim as possible. The short corner three is called the short corner three because it's closer to the rim. So when Brooke Lopez is in the corner, that gives his defender the ability to sag just a little bit and be close to the basket to help on Giannis. That's why you always see Brooke Lopez at the top of the key is because it pulls his long defender as far away from the bucket as possible. It's differences like that. Brooke Lopez being directly at the top of the key versus being at the wing versus being in the short corner. It's the positioning. It's the timing of the positioning. Are you getting there quickly and crisply and directly? It's the little things. It's the little things. It's not, well, Pat Connaughton played way too many minutes or Sterling Brown can't be in the starting lineup. No, you just need to execute and do what you've been doing all season long. You just need to do it a little bit better. Crisper. And with a purpose. That's something that jumped out to me yesterday while watching. So for those of you saying, Pat Connaughton, you can't play Pat Connaughton in the playoffs. Well, he had a pretty poor shooting game yesterday. He missed some looks at the rim too. But tweaking the rotation, tweaking the starting lineup at this point in the season when you've won 60 games and you you ran rough shot through the first round with a four-game sweep, you're, you're, not, you're not changing that. You're not adjusting your starting lineup. You just need to execute a little better. You need to do the little things 
a little better. And I think tomorrow night, you're going to see the Bucks come out purpose-driven. You're going to see them come out almost to make a statement. Oh, and by the way, I think Giannis is, is going to have a game tomorrow night. I think he's going to try to dunk on everything and anyone because he was blocked by Al Horford a couple of times yesterday. And Jalen Brown, Jalen Brown threw a dunk down with Giannis in the vicinity uh, and ESPN and Bleach Report and every possible Twitter account and Instagram account and, and news source turned that into Jalen Brown posterized Giannis. And that's not at all what happened. But let's be real. Do Boston Celtics fans even watch the games? That's how Boston fans work. You know, they see the result and then they brag about it. <laughs> So I think Giannis is going to be upset about that. Jalen Brown said in his interview today, he's like, yeah, I think Giannis is going to come out and try to dunk on everyone. Uh, The angle and the pictures of of that play yesterday made it look a lot worse than it actually was. I I think the Celtics know what they're in for. I think the Celtics know that they caught the Bucs at a good time in a good place yesterday. Uh, And I don't think either one of these teams is expecting a huge swing in this series. I think the Bucs know that it's going to be a long-fought series and there's plenty of time. And I think the Celtics know that despite what happened in Game 1, the Bucs are an incredibly good team. It's going to be the little things tomorrow night, and if the Bucs can execute, I have no issue seeing them absolutely running away with tomorrow night's game, or at least winning it uh, in a lot different fashion than what we saw yesterday. Let's be real. The Bucs weren't the only team in action this weekend. Uh, it was one of the biggest weekends of the year for the Green Bay Packers, even though they didn't play. The NFL Draft. Uh, we have a lot to talk about. The Draft is something that anyone and everyone has an opinion on. Couple interesting picks. I'm not going to call them questionable picks because anybody can question anything. Anybody can have a problem with anything. I'm not going to grade this draft because I absolutely hate that. What did What did you think of the draft? What grade would you give it? Well, who know? Nobody knows. That's just dumb. We're not going to do that. I do want to talk about their two uh, first round picks, especially, and then we'll get deeper into the draft as well. I, I'm not going to break down Jay Sternberger and and everybody else that they drafted way down the line whether that's uh, Elton Jenkins, although that was their second round pick. I'm not going to go down into round seven, but I'm going to talk about how this draft might give you an idea of what the Packers are moving forward, and that goes past the first round. So let's start with the first round, see how far we get. Well, you're listening to the Wisco Sports Show, brought to you by Play It Again Sports here on WKTY. You're listening to the Wisco Sports Show here on WKTY. Presented by Played Against Sports. I'm your host, Grant Bills. 96.7 FM, 580 AM. You can always stream on our mobile app or at WKTYsports.com. Hope you're having an awesome evening. Thanks for tuning in. It was a uh, it was an exhausting weekend. We had a lot to get through as, as Wisconsin sports fans. The Packers draft, the Brewers, the Bucks. Let's move to the draft. The draft is one of my favorite sporting events uh, of the entire year. And man, did it look cool in Nashville. I, I'm actually a little bit impressed and, and kind of confused as well. As to why that many people would stand in the in the street in Nashville, as awesome as Nashville is, don't get me wrong, and, and just listen to guys' names be announced, right? Like, man, I get, I get worn out watching the draft at home. Uh, I was texting my mom on Thursday night, which would have been the first round, and I like watching the draft. I am a sports guy. M- my mom was watching with my dad. Uh, and she'll watch, but she's not all that interested. Let's be real. And she's like, man, this takes forever. We got to take three commercial breaks between the picks. Like, just get to the point. Pick the players, right? And I, I kind of fall along those lines, too, as much as I enjoy watching it. And I'm impressed. And re- to be honest, a little bit confused that people would stand out in the rain uh, and, and just drink in the street of Nashville to listen to uh, to Roger Goodell read names. But that's what the NFL draft has become. And I do I do appreciate the, the, the strategy uh, and everything that goes into it. The Packers having two first-round picks on Thursday night was an interesting element as well because we had something to look forward to 
at pick 12, and then later on in the draft as well. I, I wasn't surprised that they traded around. I thought they might trade down with the first pick. I thought they might trade up with the 30th pick. It was rumored. So I, I knew the picks were fluid, but we had something early. We had something late as Packers fans. We had something to keep us engaged. So Thursday night was a little bit more entertaining. Let's talk about the first round in specifics. Uh, Rashawn Gary at 12 and then Darnell Savage at pick 21. They moved up from 30 to take him, the safety. So Rashawn Gary, the linebacker slash defensive end, and Darnell Savage, uh, the safety, who played corner for a while but was eventually moved to safety. I I liken it to a redo of the Demarius Randall trade for Darnell Savage because Demarius Randall was a safety who they moved to corner, and and now they're, they're... taking the prototype of Demarius Randall, who could do both but was more natural at safety, and they're going to keep him at safety. So I like both picks. I'm excited by both picks. People were upset for, for many reasons about both, and if you have frustrations or, or you have excitement, let me know. 608-796-2558, a call or a text on the five-star telecom talking text line, and I'd love to talk draft. I'm not here to assess the Packers a grade, a, a B-, minus, an A+, plus, a, a C+, plus, like, I, who knows? We're not going to know the grade on this draft until years down the road. So I'm not going to waste your time. You don't care what my opinion is. But there are some things to be excited about, and there are some things to discuss. So let's focus on the first-round picks, the two first-round picks. In the second round, they took an offensive lineman, Elton Jenkins, and a tight end in the third round in Jay Sternberger. And we'll talk about those picks coming up here in about 10 minutes because I think they're more applicable. I think some of these picks show the Packers' hand a little bit and what they're planning for the future, specifically next year and beyond. Uh, and I think the Elton Jenkins and the Jay Sternbergers of the world are really interesting case studies when trying to, to read the tea leaves down the line. So we'll get to those two players coming up. I want to focus on the first round. Rashawn Gary, the, the book is out on him as a freak athlete, as one of the, the most touted recruits in the entire nation. Um, and when I say freak athlete, because that can be a, a cliche, these guys are all freak athletes. Like they were drafted in the first round of the NFL draft. Rashawn Gary in the top half of the first round of the NFL draft. So they're all freak athletes, but to put it into perspective, when people say Rashawn Gary has all the physical skills and, and he's hyper-athletic, this is what they're talking about. Rashawn Gary, his, his 40 time was 4.58, 4.58. I don't know if 40s are, are only one measurement, but this is this is interesting to make the case. Rashawn Gary ran 4.58. Rashawn Gary is 6'4", 277. He's a defensive lineman, pass rusher, linebacker. Haha, ha Dix, a safety. Ran the same time, 4.58. Jordy Nelson, a wide receiver, ran 4.52. Devontae Adams ran a 4.56. All in comparison to Rashawn Gary, who ran a 4.58 at 6.4277. Like, the dude can move. He's very strong. He's very quick. He is one of the most physical and measurable athletes in the draft. The problem was, and I'm sure you've heard about this if you've paid attention to the draft coverage or done any reading, his production didn't live up to the hype, right? He, he disappeared from games too often. He didn't rack up the sacks. He didn't rack up uh, the batted balls. He didn't rack up the pressures and the, and the stripped and the fumbles forced, right? There wasn't enough qual- quantitative stats to back up his hype and his physical presence, right? His length, his speed, his strength, etc. And look, I'm not denying that. The Packers could whiff. This could be another Nick Perry, a guy who on paper looked great and through all of his physical measurables and vertical jump and speed and strength looked great. And he just doesn't pan out. That's a that's a strong possibility. But you got to remember that not just the Packers, but every NFL team and their their scouting staff and their general manager ultimately pick guys minding what they believe the players are going to be down the line. I'm not saying that the front office of the Packers doesn't care what Rashawn Gary did at Michigan. 
But they use those uh, that tape in that film that they have of Rashawn Gary to say, okay, well, here's what he did in college and combine this with his 40 time and, and his strength and his speed and his interview and his, his, his wonder lick, whatever. Combine everything, tape included, statistics included, measurables included, and say, okay, well, what does that translate to? What do we think that's going to translate to in 2019 and in 2020 and in 2021? How does he project when we slap him next to Kenny Clark? And next to the two free agent pass rushers. And and, and we get him into a, a, an NFL training room. And, and he's working with professionals. What do we think he's going to become? And once again, I'm not saying that he's going to be a surefire Hall of Famer. Because he, he's got all the physical gifts. And they didn't they didn't use him correctly at Michigan. And then why would, he, why would he play that hard at Michigan? He's not getting paid. Like, look, I'm not defending the lack of productivity. I'm simply saying, put yourself in the mind of Brian Gutekunst and his scouting, couch, um, his scouting staff. They're saying, all right. We, we see what he did at Michigan. Combine that with everything we know. We think that he can turn into this. We think he can become this. And I know there's some concerns. Obviously, lack of production is going to worry you. A, a, a high-level player like that disappearing from a game can worry you. Because, well, now you're saying, well, does he have the work ethic? Does he have the 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 drive or has he just been getting by on talent and physical gifts and now there's this issue with his shoulder is he going to need labrum surgery the Packers are convinced he's not gonna ultimately all of that is moot because the only thing that mattered when the Packers got onto the clock at pick 12 is what do we believe Rashawn Gary can do in a year from now in two in three years from now right because his career at Michigan is over not saying it doesn't matter but it's only one tiny little piece of the puzzle so it's definitely a, a, a gutsy pick. It's a risk pick. It's a high upside pick. But it could also have a high, a high risk in, in flopping and turning into a guy like Nick Perry, for example. And when the when the Nick Perry comparisons start to get thrown around, then people get worried. I, I thought it was fantastic. Some people were pointing out on Twitter and, and all over the place. Remember how many sacks Clay Matthews had in college? Five and a half. That's it. Clay Matthews in his career at USC had five and a half sacks. And he turned into the franchise leader for the Packers in sacks. Not saying that that's going to be Rashawn Gary. Not, not saying that that's going to be the case every time they draft a, a high a high ceiling player, but with low productivity in college. Not saying that's, there's obviously exceptions to every rule and, and trends are meant to be bucked. Like I talked about when we started the show with the Bucks. But Clay Matthews is a great example. Five and a half sacks in college. That's it. But when he got to the pros, it was a different story because they thought at the time and were proven right that Clay Matthews could turn into something bigger, better at the next level. And the Packers are operating under that same assumption uh, with Rashawn Gary picking him at, at, at pick number 12. I really like uh, the, the Savage pick. I really, really love the Darnell Savage pick at 21. I don't care that the Packers traded up to get him at all. Not I, That does not bother me at all. Part of what's great about the Packers having however many draft picks they had, right? 10 picks, 12 picks, however many it is, is not to necessarily use all of those picks, but to have the flexibility to say, well, we really want Darnell Savage. We're not sure if he's going to make it to 30. We're not sure. He might, he might not. Let's play it safe. We have the extra picks. Let's play it safe. Let's trade up and get him because we want him. And ultimately, getting the player that we want is more important than having two picks in the fourth round. That's why you trade HaHa Clinton Dix when you know you're not going to bring him back. Not only to get an extra pick to possibly take a player, but to give you flexibility to make sure that you get the player that you want. And that was Darnell Savage, uh, the defensive back safety from Maryland at pick 21. I don't care that they traded up at all. If he's your guy, go get him. 
If you trust your scouts and you trust the work that you've done and you think this is the right player who's going to fit your system, who's going to fit the players you have around him, who's going to fit Mike Pettin in the scheme he wants to run, go get him. Go get him. Make sure. Don't don't risk it. Go get him. That's why you have a lot of picks. So that doesn't bother me at all. A lot of people are saying, they could have had him at 30. You never know. Brian Gutekinds was talking uh, after the draft and uh, about how they were convinced. They thought that maybe the Ravens were interested in taking him or the Colts and Obviously, the Packers in that front office now have not only the Baltimore Ravens connection, but the UW Lacrosse connection in Milt Hendrickson, maybe with some insider information. You never know. You absolutely never know. But they must have had some belief that some team between 20 and 30 were interested in Darnell Savage, and they didn't want to risk it. So ultimately, what this is going to shape out to be is they bring in Adrian Amos, the hitter, right? The guy who can play down in the box, who's a great tackler. He just needed a partner to essentially play center field, to play back to roam, to ball hawk, to lay down big hits, to try to drive on the ball to force turnovers. That was supposed to be Haha Clint Dix last year. Didn't turn out to be the case. Now they have Darnell Savage. Look, I don't know how Rashawn Gary is going to turn out. I don't know how Darnell Savage is going to turn out. I don't have a crystal ball. There's excitement to be had for both of these players. There's concerns as well. They could both flop. You never know. But before we move on, I, I just got to say this, and I was talking to some friends about this on Thursday night. Let's put this into perspective. We're going to be in year two of Mike Pettin, in year two of Brian Gutekunst. They have gone from a team who was playing Jermaine Whitehead and Kentrell Bryce at safety. And, uh, and uh, uh, oh my gosh, what is his name? Thankfully, I'm, I'm forgetting it. Ladarius Gunter at corner. And they have transformed that, uh, that, that defense with aging Clay Matthews, an expensive injury-prone Nick Perry at pass rusher. They have spun that around and in two years transformed this defense into Adrian Amos and Darnell Savage. Jair Alexander, Kevin King, and Josh Jackson in the secondary. Now, I still don't love their linebackers. That's okay. They have Blake Martinez. We'll see uh, how they arrange things. But that defensive front is now nasty. They added Preston Smith and Zadarius Smith, two big, versatile pass rushers. I love their defensive line, just like I did last year with Kenny Clark and Mike Daniels. And they, they supplemented that in the draft as well. And now they have Rashawn Gary. The way that this defense has been transformed, I don't know if it's transformed for the better, but it certainly has the upper-level talent, the ceiling, I can't wait to watch how it plays out. Because as a Packer fan, putting the, the broadcaster aside, putting the objectivity aside, the Packers have completely revamped their defense with young, cheap, exciting talent. And I can't wait to watch it. I cannot wait to watch Adrian Amos and Darnell Savage as a safety tandem. I can't wait to see what Jair Alexander does in year two. And I hope Kevin King's able to stay healthy. That could be great. And then Josh Jackson, well, who knows what he does. And all they also have Tremont Williams. And that front seven is going to be nasty. Hopefully. The potential's there, and I'm really impressed at the way that Mike Pettin and Brian Gutekunst have gone about revamping that defense in such a short amount of time. They used a lot of draft picks. They used some free agency money, but ultimately, if you want to get better, uh, you got to invest. Draft picks, free agency capital, trades, you got to invest. You got to put the resources in, and the Packers have done exactly that in the last two years. Pretty impressive the way that they've transformed this defense to younger, more talented, less expensive, and hopefully less injury-prone. That was one of the trends in the free agency signings for Brian Gutekunst. A lot of guys who have started a lot of games over the course of their career. Hopefully a much-needed breath of fresh air from Clay Matthews, Nick Perry, and the bunch. Now, once you look past the first round, specifically in round two and three, as a Packer fan, you can kind of start reading the tea leaves of what's going on in Brian Gutekunst's head. You start to look at the free agents who are coming up. You start to look at who's getting paid a lot of money. Who blends into the scheme? Who blends into the type of Brian Gutekunst? Because now we have some precedent. We have two drafts and a free agency class. Well, two free agency classes. What's the kind of player that Brian Gutekunst likes? What's the kind of player that Mike Pettin likes? And what players maybe don't fit? 
maybe players who are coming up in free agency. And if the Packers draft a certain position, that tells you something about the players they already have at that position. If they don't draft for a certain position, well, that tells you something too. Let's talk about maybe what the future is going to look like for Green Bay uh, in the next year or so as we wrap up the Wisco Sports Show. Coming up next, you're listening to WKTY. Final segment of the Wisco Sports Show here on WKTY. I'm your host, Grant Bills. The show is always presented by Played Against Sports. Hope you're having an awesome night. Brewers on the way in just minutes. 6.30 first pitch tonight. Pre-game should get underway at about 6.05. You don't have to wait very long after the conclusion of the Wisco Sports Show to get into Brewers baseball. I was uh, I, I was shook this morning. We're talking Packers draft, and we're talking, well, Green Bay Packers as a whole right now. I was shook this morning. One of my favorite players... Uh, is Mike Daniels. I've always loved Mike Daniels. I love his attitude, and I think he's criminally underrated compared to a lot of other defensive linemen around the NFL, right? So I'm on Twitter, I'm whipping through, and I see a headline uh, from Tom Silverstein. Tom Silverstein, he writes for the the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel and for PackersNews.com, a very, very reliable and trusted and excellent reporter on the Packers beat. Here's the headline, Why Mike Daniels is no longer the right fit for the Packers. What the hell? Okay, but why? Why now? What? Why is? Why, why is that crossing your mind? Why are you discussing that now? And as I thought about it, it started to make more sense to me. So, so here's what started to make sense: when the Packers draft a certain position, heavy, that tells you a little bit about what they think of the players they currently have at that position, right? Like, like if the Packers go out, they draft three corners in a draft. That tells you all you need to know about the corners who are currently on the roster. They stink. The Packers don't believe in them, so they're getting new ones. Now, if the Packers don't draft a certain position, that tells you something, too. If they don't draft any linebackers, then the Packers like what they have at linebacker, and they're ready to to go with that group. So today was a great example of that. The Packers released Nico Saragusa, a lineman who they brought in later in the year from Baltimore last year. And it makes sense, right? They drafted Elton Jenkins. They're getting Cole Madison back. The Packers feel confident in the way that their offensive line is trending. They take an offensive lineman in the second round in Elton Jenkins, Brian Bulaga is set to be a free agent. So they draft a lineman. Yeah, they got Cole Madison back. Yeah, Alex Light's still in the fold. Okay, you kind of feel the direction the Packers are trending. After this season, they're probably going to move on from Brian Bulaga, and they have a deep group waiting in the wings for when that day arrives next year. Brian Bulaga is set to be a free agent. Okay, that makes sense. Blake Martinez is a free agent to be as well. Now, I thought the Packers would try to find some inside linebacking help in this draft because I didn't think they wanted to commit to Blake Martinez long-term. They haven't really valued that position. It's not a, a position they've dra- they've dealt out big contracts, big paydays. I thought they'd be ready to move on from Blake Martinez. Well, the Packers didn't address that until the seventh round. They didn't take it. Now, I know Rashawn Gary's a linebacker, but a completely different linebacker. He's going to be working up on the line, rushing the passer. Even if he is listed as a, as a linebacker of sorts, he is a pass rusher, okay? Blake Martinez is different. They didn't address, they didn't draft a, a linebacker who fits the prototype of Blake Martinez till the seventh round. So now all of a sudden I'm thinking, they must like Blake Martinez. They must be getting ready to pay him here at some point. Now, why does this tie into Mike Daniels and why he is no longer the right fit for the Green Bay Packers, at least why Tom Silverstein says so? Well, I read the article and I said, oh man, that makes a lot of sense. A couple of weeks ago, we were talking uh, post-free agency about Brian Gutekunst's type. We all have that friend, right, who, who's always in a relationship, right? They break up with their girlfriend. They got a new one next week, right? 
So you have a, a big sample size to say, okay, this is the kind of these are the kind of girls he's interested in. These are the kind of guys she's interested in. You start to see a trend, start to see a pattern, you start to see a type. Well, in free agency, Brian Gudikins, at least to me, showed that he likes really big, really versatile pass rushers in Preston and Zadarius Smith, who also stay healthy. Because we we have some some history to look back with those guys. They haven't been hurt a lot. They haven't missed a lot of games. Knock on wood. Something else that I've noticed, and this was pointed out by Tom Silverstein in, in this in this piece, Rashawn Gary, six foot four. They just drafted him, two seventy seven. He's a big dude. Okay, other guys on the roster, and Zadarius Smith, six four, two seventy two, big guy. Preston Smith is a little bit lighter at two sixty five, but he's six five. He's very long, very tall, big guy. Kenny Clark is six three. Dean Lowry is six six. You start to look at their front seven. Some big dudes, long arms, heavy, can line up inside, can line up outside, can move around. One guy who really doesn't fit that prototype is Mike Daniels. He's six foot, and he's 3'10". He's huge, but he's short and squat. He's a former wrestler. He is a Ted Thompson prototype pick, right? Big body, low leverage, can't do a whole lot else but rush up the gut. Now, Mike Daniels is very good at that. Mike Daniels is one of my favorite passers. But you start to put the puzzle pieces together as we were doing with Brian Bulaga and as we were just doing with Blake Martinez. Mike Daniels is about to be a free agent. This is last year under contract. Now, I'm not saying the Packers are looking to trade him and move off of him early. But the more I look at, at the tea leaves and the more that I look at the players around Mike Daniels and the players that Brian Gutekunst has sought out compared to Ted Thompson, Mike Daniels really doesn't fit. So it becomes easy when you're looking at player acquisition through the draft and through free agency to to try to generalize, to try to recognize a trend, recognize a pattern, and say, oh, there's an outlier. Uh, He's set to be a free agent? Hmm. Maybe. Just maybe. Maybe they try to trade him, or maybe they just let him walk because they're not interested in bringing him back. I'd hate to see Mike Daniels go, but just another example of how you can look at the draft, kind of sit on it, think about it for a while, and say, okay, what does this draft tell us about their linebacking group? Well, I think they really like Blake Martinez. They might be getting ready to pay him because it's not a position they address. I don't think they're interested in bringing Brian Bulaga back, which is a little bit easier to say because they brought in Billy Turner. They drafted Elton Jenkins. Cole Madison is now reported. It's easy to kind of to draw the line from A to B. Mike Daniels, not really fitting in on that offensive line. We'll see if, he, uh, if, if the Packers do indeed want to go in a different direction or just let him go at the end of this contract, not re-sign him. Interesting. Interesting. Trying to do a little bit of forecasting. Brewers get back in action tonight. Pre-game is on at 6.05, just minutes after this show concludes. I can't wait to be back. Talk about it all tomorrow. Bucks will get ready for game two tomorrow night as well here on the Wisco Sports Show. Talk to you then.